Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, Alarmy favorite and writer Anastasia Kousakis discusses the great grounding of the mid-90s. Because I was such a good kid and followed most of the rules, they like didn't get a real, I didn't break them in or anything. Like they just, Mm. I just did what they wanted me to do. Right. I was very honest and, you know, but yeah, I was, I think. Like did your siblings get away with more than you, your younger siblings? Like were they doing stuff? Oh my God, Clayton. For sure, right? Four four (laughs) years later, my youngest brother was like, not four, I don't know. Four or five years later, my youngest brother was caught buying beer and everybody just laughed. Oh, like, that is so frustrating for you. That's, you it's got grounded for a month for going, going to the beach. You went to Starbucks no, and you got grounded for a month. This is- Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Professor Matthew Solomon. Professor Solomon works at the University of Michigan and is the author of Disappearing Tricks, Silent Film, Houdini, and the New Magic of the 20th Century. 
Let's hear what he has to say about the death of Houdini. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Rebecca. Glad to be here. So can you start off by giving us a little background on Harry Houdini and his upbringing? How did he get into the magic scene at the time? So Houdini was uh, an immigrant, a Jewish immigrant from Budapest. Uh, His father was a rabbi, but in the new country, pretty impoverished, Uh, lived in Milwaukee for a time, New York City for a time. And at some point in his childhood, got really interested in magic and read the memoirs of the great French magician Robert Houdin, uh, from which Houdini derived his name because he believed that to add an I to Houdin was to be like Houdin. Um, So Houdini had an interest in magic and started performing at a relatively young age. At first, he was working with his brother, later with his wife, Beatrice, uh, known as Bess, and eventually kind of got his big break in 1899 when Martin Beck, who was a vaudeville manager, said, why don't you drop the magic and just make it about the escapes? And at that point, Houdini really started to take off as a performer, went to Europe and really was extremely successful in Europe, came back to the U.S. and was a headliner and a major star. Can you tell us more about Houdini's tricks and routines, uh, those that captured the attention of audiences? What made his show really stand out from other illusionists of the time? So he specialized in escapes. Uh, He effectively kind of started the magic specialty of escape artistry. Uh, unlike other magicians who were transforming things or doing uh, illusions of various kinds, Houdini's whole thing was that he could get out of any restraint. He could get out of handcuffs. He could get out of straitjackets. And not only that, but he could get out of things that were provided by police departments, by people from the audience So it was as if it was not rigged because these handcuffs were brought on by the local police department. Uh, He escaped from containers of all kinds. Uh, He was nailed in packing crates and thrown off of piers and inevitably escaped from whatever the restraint was. How how regimented was Houdini about his physical conditioning and how he was perceived by his public um, and, and how, how physically taxing would you say his stunts were? So he was extremely disciplined physically. He was in great shape, uh, could hold his breath for incredible amounts of time through training, through really practicing that. Um, and I think there was no allusion to getting out of a straitjacket. It's just actual bodily exertion. So, and he did it in full view of the audience. So he was in tremendous physical condition. The man only slept like four hours a night. I mean, he was just really extremely active, disciplined, and just had, again, unbelievable work ethic. Um that he put into his art form and really he kind of lived it 
He didn't have, you know, much in the way of downtime. He was really working all the time. How common was it for Houdini to get injured? Did he have any close calls ever? I'm not aware of, you know, major injuries. He had one just prior to his death, but um, he was pretty... Again, I, I don't know of many cases where he got injured. There may have been such uh, events, but pretty good, like an athlete, like a highly trained athlete, he took great care of his body. And <clears throat> I'm not aware of a lot of cases where he was injured um, because he had such elaborate preparations to make sure that an injury would not occur. Um, yeah. Do you do you know if he ever revealed any of his secrets? And if so, who did he tell? So he published the Straightjacket Escape, you know, oh. in major magazines. There was no secret to that. Uh, he was very open about that particular escape. It was done in full view of the audience. Most of the other illusions he kept a very close uh, eye on. He did not reveal his tricks. Shortly after his death, one of his chief assistants kind of published a book in which uh, J.C. Cannell revealed some of the secrets of Houdini, but he was very secretive about uh, the magical illusions. The straitjacket escape, that was not, there was no secret to it, just sheer exertion and, again, incredible strength to wriggle his way out of a straitjacket in full view of an audience in a relatively short amount of time. Mm. Now, he remains a household name for, you know, almost 100 years after his death. I think it's hard for us to imagine how famous Houdini was at his peak and, and, and at the time of his death. Are there any comparisons and, and to, to who, who was he like? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking uh, about that issue and sort of like who would we compare him to? Um, you know, on one hand, we might compare him to some of these open air magicians um, that, you know, do their tricks in front of an audience really close up. But his fame was much greater than I think any magician in the present day has. He was this kind of multimedia figure. He was in the news. He was in the newsreels. And I think, you know, maybe the fairest comparison would be a prominent athlete of our time. Um, or, you know, some of those athletes that have crossed over into film and television that I think is the closest comparison. He was an incredible self-promoter, like second only to P.T. Barnum in his ability to self-promote. He was relentless self-promoter, uh, was not afraid of tooting his own horn, and um, he got the attention of people, often by doing these stunts in front of thousands of people in major metropolitan areas. He would come to a city, he would be performing in the theater, but even if you didn't buy tickets, you could go watch him escape from a straitjacket or escape from a packing crate, and 
you know, you didn't have to pay anything for the price of admission. Mm. You just come and watch that stunt. That stunt inevitably made the papers. That stunt was often filmed. Um, and Houdini himself incorporated those kinds of films into his act. He understood that there's no conflict between magic and media. Media just gives you another channel to self-promote. And so he really understood very early the power of cinema. He was, you know, uh, right alongside Edison Motion Pictures very early in his career. And he really understood the power of the media, motion pictures. He went on radio when radio was still kind of an emergent art form. And he had great relationships with newspapers. So his uh, appearance in any city got great coverage. Uh, he would often bring along newspaper reporters when he escaped from jails. So he really <laughs> understood the power of the modern media, 20th century media, and he made the most of it. What were some of his films like? And, and, and what was his film career like? So there's kind of two parts to his film career. The one part which people often forget about, but which to me is the more interesting and important part is the nonfiction films, all the films that were taken of him doing public escapes, dangling from a newspaper building and escaping from a straitjacket. They're like reportage, you know, re uh, documentary kind of footage. And he really made dozens of these movies. Unfortunately, shortly after his death, um, they were all disposed of because they were made of nitrocellulose, which is a major mm. fire hazard. So the fire inspector came in after his death and all of his film footage was disposed of. Wow. Um, but he also had a career. Um, he basically kind of rebooted after World War I and decided, hey, I want to be a movie star. He moved out to Hollywood. He made um, a 15-episode serial before he went to Hollywood. He made feature films in Hollywood. Um, and then he became an independent film producer making his own movies. So he really believed that he could have had a career um, he tried to become, uh, a kind of movie star, uh, independent filmmaker before there was such a thing as independent filmmaking. He just didn't think it was profitable enough. And <laughs> he got back into live performance and I think he did better financially. And I think his film career is just wildly misunderstood. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I hear that. I hear the <laughs> profit part. Um, how big was the magic scene at that time during Houdini's time? And how popular was it among audiences? It was a pretty big thing. I think that's hard to grasp in our day and age, but every vaudeville performance. Um, so before, um, you know, the first form of mass entertainment was really vaudeville, variety theater, in which you went to a theater, huge theater, thousands of people watching a series of discrete acts. And magicians were often part of a vaudeville show. They weren't the whole show, but they were part of a show and they were considered a kind of important ingredient to a balanced program. So there were quite a few magicians doing all kinds of magic, big illusionists, as well as 
kind of small close-up performers. And they were kind of in all areas of entertainment, vaudeville being the most important at that time, but also in traveling shows, in smaller kind of theatrical venues. So magic was kind of ubiquitous in the entertainment landscape of that period. And Houdini really kind of stood out because he wasn't doing card tricks. He wasn't doing, you know, um, vanishing illusions. He was doing this thing called escape artistry mm. and it caught the attention of the public because partly it was happening in real life. It wasn't just happening on a stage. It was happening in the streets of the modern city. It wasn't always like on a stage with the possibility of trap doors and mirrors and who knows what kind of uh, rigging. So I think that was part of what Houdini brought to magic and made him different than the dozens or hundreds of magicians that, um, you know, came before and after him and simultaneous to him. There was something thrilling about his uh, his performances. It, it could go wrong, potentially. Yeah, there was a danger element uh, when you're nailed inside a packing crate and thrown into the East River. If you don't get out, you're going to drown. <laughs> so uh, that he did an escape called, um, he called it the Upside Down. Uh, it was called the Water Torture Cell. He was suspended by his ankles just he descended into this glass walled uh kind of enclosure and he had you know a couple minutes to get out otherwise he was going to drown and the audience is kind of waiting to see if he emerges from behind that curtain if he's going to get out of that torture cell it's a finite amount of time that you can survive underwater so there was definitely a thrill and a feeling like you know, there's a possibility this guy could die in the yeah. performance of this illusion. He took every <laughs> precaution to try and prevent that. But of course, um, you know, you see there's no way to breathe in that torture cell. It's a glass front. You can see there's no way to breathe. Curtain comes in front of it, um, you know. You're holding your breath. How long can you hold your breath? Well, at some point, right? He's either going to come out from behind that curtain or, you know, something awful is going to happen. Oof. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Now, I want to go back to the film, his film career. I'm just realizing, um, I- I'm wondering what the what the content of his films uh, was. Did he do magic in his films or was it more of a storytelling uh, kind of cinema? Very much story films, at least the the kind of commercial films. I told you about the documentaries and the kind of mm-hmm. nonfiction. Yeah. Um, but his, um, his serial and the feature films were very much story films. They followed a kind of Hollywood model, but they were very sensationalistic. Uh, they would often build up to these death-defying situations. Was he going to be able to escape? Could he get out in time? Um, So he never really kind of escaped the really sensational, melodramatic Mm. kind of um, storytelling. And it was that, I think, that held him back as much as anything. He was a, he loved detective fiction. He loved sensational storytelling and Hollywood filmmaking was moving to something that was a little more genteel, a little more, um, you know, family friendly. And I think he remained committed to this kind of sensational uh, storytelling that Hollywood was distinctly trying to distance itself from. Mm. And so he was not a great fit with the Hollywood model. Um Inevitably, he would have performed some type of escape on screen as part of the story, but the emphasis was really on the story. Now, later in his career, he proves to be a big debunker. What was his relationship to the spiritualists of the time, and how and why did he set out to prove them wrong? So he was one of the most kind of vocal anti-spiritualists of the 20th century, we got to remember that people very actively believed, at least a a pretty large segment of the population believed that there were ways to get in touch with the dead through spirit mediums, through spirit photography. And Houdini, he's early in his career, he actually did a couple of like pseudo spirit medium performances, because that was a kind of specialty of magic to impersonate spiritualism, to imitate its effects. But at a certain point, he began distancing himself from that. I think one of the turning points came um, when his friend, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, produced a spirit demonstration involving his wife in which they said they were in contact with Houdini's deceased mother. And 
Houdini did not believe that it was her. Mm. And so I think that was a kind of turning point for him after which he became really kind of pretty violently opposed to spirit mediums. And he had a kind of crusade in the last 10 or 15 years of his life to debunk spiritualism, to disprove it on the stage, to challenge mediums. He was involved in all kinds of psychical research as an observer. And he really kind of crusaded against spiritualism. The irony is that he left a code for his wife <laughs> after he died. So there had to have been some level of belief. Otherwise, you don't leave a code um, for your living relatives to, to, to know it's you on the other side. So that always has seemed rather ironic to me. There's always a 0.1%. Uh, <laughs> so could you walk us through the last month or so of Houdini's life? H how did his health quickly decline? So he was injured uh, performing the water torture cell. So part of that illusion involves clamping his ankles in these stocks and then hoisting him upside down over the stage and lowering him into this glass-fronted enclosure. And evidently the cables tangled and he broke his ankle. And he, Oof. if it had been worse, he would have you know, potentially lost um, a foot. And so he sustained this injury, but he was determined to go on with the show. He was determined that he wouldn't be deterred. He did not, you know, pause or cancel his tour. He kept touring. Um, and at some point, he developed appendicitis. And he did not treat it. He continued to perform. Reporters, people that were present, you know, noticed he was not looking well. He repeatedly kind of um, did not seek medical attention. He was determined to go on with his program. He was determined to tough it out and gut it out, even, uh, you know, with a broken ankle, with what later turned out to be appendicitis, a ruptured appendix. So that that was a very difficult period, and that eventually leads to his death, his untimely death at the age of 52. Like you said, his, well, his official cause of death was peritonitis caused by appendicitis. But there's speculation that Houdini's death could have actually been a murder plot carried out by the skeptics at the time. How plausible is this? <laughs> Not plausible. <laughs> Absolute poppycock. Now, this is because of, uh, I think what people referred to is this punch that he received while he was performing in Montreal or backstage. That's um, correct. Yeah. So there has been, you know, a lot of misunderstanding, I think, of the, the circumstances. He was, in fact, punched backstage unexpectedly by a student at McGill University. 
who had heard that Houdini could withstand punches. He was so strong and so well-conditioned that he could withstand punches. Um, and this student caught him unexpectedly with a couple of blows to the midsection. And that was very painful and unexpected. But I do not think there's any kind of cause and effect between a fatal case of appendicitis, which by all evidence seems to have preceded that, right? Somebody who was in the room with the student uh, when he was punched said Houdini was not looking well. He was looking, um, again, just not looking well. And that was before this punch. But the legend has grown that somehow that was a fatal, eventually fatal blow that ruptured the appendix. As far as I know, there's not any medical cases of someone having a ruptured appendix by a sharp blow of some kind. I don't think there's any, I'm not a physician, but I, I'm not aware of that being a cause. So I think those are two unrelated events uh, that coincided in time, but I think the appendicitis preceded the blow. The peritonitis came as a direct consequence of living with a ruptured appendix for days, maybe weeks, without treatment. How, how, what was the public's reaction to Houdini's death? And what do you think is his legacy? I think they were stunned um, by his death. Um, that may have been where some of these stories emerged. Uh, of course, there was tabloid journalism at that time, just like there is today. So it's possible some of those stories came out at that point. Um, what's his legacy? I think people know the name Houdini, but they don't really know what he actually did, which is fine because Howard Thurston, famous magician, Houdini's contemporaries, very few people know that name, but mm -mm. they know the name Houdini. And I think he kind of became a myth during his own lifetime or shortly thereafter. There's so many interesting elements of this myth. The immigrant who cannot be contained, who can get out of anything. Um, the person who can uh, defy the odds and do what other people cannot do to make the impossible. So I think that comes down to us, even if people are not aware of the details of his biography or what he actually did on stage or in front of crowds, that name means something and it's been picked up and it's part of the dictionary. It's part of the lexicon and it, it kind of means magic. It means the impossible. It means the possibilities of what a human being can do um, that are extraordinary that maybe nobody else can do. So we always ask our guest experts this final question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the death of Houdini, who or what would that be? I think there's no question. The word we now use is workaholic. Oh. <laughs> I think it was being a workaholic that was fatal to Houdini. 
if he had taken time for what we now call self-care and sought medical attention or taken a break instead of going right back on stage, I think Houdini might have lived another couple decades. Um, so I do believe it wasn't a punch. Um, yes, it was appendicitis, but even more so, it was being a workaholic. It can be fatal. Wow. Matthew, thank you so much for <laughs> joining us today. And honestly, I I ha wasn't anxious or stressed about being a workaholic, but now I am. So we're grateful to have you on the podcast. <laughs> Watch out. It could be fatal. <laughs> Take time for self-care. Seek medical attention when needed. Great advice. <laughs> If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash thealarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing the Duchess of Argyle scandal. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 